All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the, uh, I'm the resurrection of life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's bow our heads together in a word of prayer. Our Father, thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. As we examine these significant and profound truths related to your will and to your sovereign rule over human history, there's much that is difficult for us to understand, uh, some that is beyond our understanding, and other aspects have been uh, confused and confounded due to various uh, misunderstandings and mistranslations of Scripture. Father, we pray that we might be clear and accurately handle your word, that it may be used by God the Holy Spirit to strengthen us in our spiritual life, help us to understand the importance of our own individual responsibilities, our own individual volition, and also to understand how you work out your will in human history and the way you work it out through the people of God whom you have appointed in distinct dispensations. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 9. We'll be going back and forth a little bit between Romans 9 and Exodus. Uh, I have most of the passages up on the screen, but we'll be moving through some passages, and I'm sure you will want to make some notes in the margins and also uh, write down some of the Scripture references we connect together so that you can go back and benefit from this study later on. I've titled the message, Hardened Hearts and the Potter's Clay. These are some of, I think, some of the most interesting passages to deal with in Scripture because they are so often misinterpreted and used to argue for a deterministic view of God's sovereign will and to buttress arguments for God's unconditional election, his choice, of each individual who will be saved and either passively or actively thereby determining those who will not be saved. Just to remind you where we are in terms of the way I have translated these opening verses in Ephesians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. The importance of that phrase in Christ, we see it here as in Christ, in him, us in him, in the beloved, 
just a few of the ways in which this is translated throughout this opening uh, eulogy, that is this praise statement of Paul's that goes from verse 3 down to verse 14, which we read uh, beforehand in our scripture reading. Who are in him, and we're in him by imputed righteousness. That's not stated. This is paraphrastic. Uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing the what this the meaning of the text is. We are in him by imputed righteousness before the foundation of the world, as God perceives his future uh, body of the future body of Christ, that we should be holy and without blemish before him in love by preordaining us. Who's the us? The us in him, the body of Christ, the corporate preordination, predetermining the role and purpose of those in Christ. It is done by adopting us as sons through Jesus Christ unto himself, something unique never before happened in history. According to the good pleasure of his will, this is the phrase we've been looking at last week and this week, and then to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on, and then here we have that similar phrase, us in the beloved, referring to the body of Christ, those who are in him. We have seen that this preordination was to appoint us to a task beforehand, uh, adoption, and it's done through adopting us as sons in God's royal family by Jesus Christ, that is by his death on the cross to himself. He is our father uh, in a unique and distinct way through adoption, and it is according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, I've revised this chart, familiar chart, a couple of ways just to make sure you understand why I'm using certain terminology that's a little distinctive. When we talk about salvation, often people get confused. There are three phases, some people call it three tenses of salvation. Phase one is justification salvation. When we are saved from the penalty of sin at the instant that we trust in Christ as Savior. If you've never trusted in Christ as Savior, then the scripture says that you are still condemned. We are under condemnation because we are born spiritually dead. As Paul will point out in Ephesians 2, 1, we are all born dead in our trespasses and sins. And the only way to recover from that is to be made alive again in him. And that happens when we trust Jesus Christ as our Savior. So justification, salvation takes place the instant we trust in Christ. And we are born anew. We get a new life in Christ, and that new life is then to be nourished. As Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 2, we are commanded to desire the milk of the word. Uh, we are desire, we are commanded to hunger for it, to feed on it, to desire the milk of the word that we may grow thereby. We are to grow from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. I'm often surprised, uh, sadly, because most Christians don't seem to want to grow to spiritual maturity. We all know in our physical life that we all wanted to be treated as adults quite early in life, maybe before we were even 10, we wanted to be treated like a grown-up. 
But in the spiritual life, it seems like we all want to stay babies. But we are to grow thereby, by the word. Jesus said in his prayer to the Father, sanctify them, another word related to our spiritual growth, sanctify them uh, in truth or by means of truth, thy word is truth. It is through the study and the assimilation of the word of God into our lives so that we're saturated with the word of God, that we, the God, the Holy Spirit, uses it to mature us and to grow us spiritually. So we're looking at this phrase that is related to uh, God's will, according to his good pleasure, that is, according to the standard of his satisfaction which he purposed in himself. So we're talking about what the Bible teaches about God's will and continuing with a little review from where I ended last time. Now, last time I pointed out that there are several words related to will that are used in the Scripture. There's bulamai. Second Peter 3.9 uses that word to talk about the fact that God desires all men to be saved, everyone to be saved. His desire is not that any be lost. Second word that we have, we have uh, two forms of it, the verb form protithemi and the noun form prothesis relates to God's purpose. And this is where we're studying uh, for that word, form of the word uh, the form of the verb protithemi occurs in Ephesians 1.9, and it occurs in Ephesians 1.11 and Romans 9.11, which is where we went last time to look at how that is laid out, a much misunderstood passage often uh, assigned to talking about justification salvation when that is not the context at all. A third word is eudokia, which is used here in Ephesians 1.5, referring to the satisfaction or approval by God's will. And then the third word that's also used in this passage, the lema, another word that is a, in some places a synonym for bulamai, meaning will or desire. I pointed out last time that there are three key terms to help us understand the will of God. The first is talking about God's revealed will. This is what Scripture says when there are various commands, when there are prohibitions, uh, thou shalt not and thou shalt. Uh, these commands to pray without ceasing, to love one another as Christ has loved us. Uh, these are the positive commands of Scripture, what God has revealed for us to do. But many times we do not do what God has commanded us to do, as Adam and Eve did not obey God in the garden, and God gives mankind freedom of choice to some degree. It's not completely autonomous, and so God allows us to dis disobey him. This is the origin of sin. This is the origin of evil. So God, in, in his plan and purpose, has determined that he will allow us to disobey him. And that brings chaos and corruption into human history. It is the ultimate source of wars and famine and social injustice in the biblical sense in order that uh, we may see that any life apart from God is self-destructive. And then the third word that I'm using is God's overruling will where 
At times we make certain choices, but God does not allow us to bring those choices to fruition. So those are some key terms. So we went from our, our, our foundational passage in Ephesians 5 to talk about what's going on in Romans chapter 9, pointing out the context of Romans 9, that it is shifting away from the straight-line argument of the Apostle Paul talking about uh, first justification in Romans uh, 3 and 4, reconciliation in 5. So those three chapters talk about how to go to heaven when we die. Then the topic shifted in Romans 6, 7, and 8 to now that we are justified, how is a justified person supposed to live? And Paul ended that with a tremendous statement that uh, indicates that we are secure in our salvation, that he was persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height or depth nor any other thing would be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But then he recognizes there might be an objection from those who are Jewish because it appears that God was setting Israel aside. And the question that would come up is, has God permanently set aside Israel? And he is going to deny that in the first few verses of Romans 11.1. But he lays the foundation starting in Romans 9, God's plan and purpose for Israel. And the focus here is not on individual justification but on God's plan for the nation Israel, for it is a corporate focus. And he gives several illustrations, and we saw that the first illustration in verses 13 and 14 had to do with Esau and Jacob. And the second illustration has to do with Moses, which I didn't have time to finish last time. We just barely got started with that. The third illustration has to do with Pharaoh and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And the fourth illustration will have to do with the uh, imagery of the potter and the clay coming out of Jeremiah. And my point here is that none of these have to do with God's selection of individuals for eternal salvation and justification salvation. They are all related to God's selection of the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a particular purpose in human history that was uh, laid out uh, through the covenants to Israel in the Old Testament, and this has to do with God's purpose in the corporate calling and setting aside of, of Israel. So uh, we'll continue uh, looking at this from last time. Verse 11, key verse, this is where we have the use of the word purpose for the children not yet being born, talking about Esau and Jacob. Remember, um, their mother, Rebecca, was pregnant with twins. She uh, gives birth to them. Esau is the one who comes out first at, with his twin brother Jacob being the younger and grabbing at the heel, which was a an idiom in the ancient world for you know trying to get ahead, trying to supplant somebody else, uh, trying to overcome opposition and competition. And so Jacob uh, is the heel grabber. 
He's the one who's trying to, to get ahead and take advantage of his competition no matter what. And so that becomes characteristic of his, of his, uh, of his life. And we read in Romans 9.13 a quotation from Malachi as it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And so it is uh, the knee-jerk interpretation by people who haven't taken time to really study the word to take this as talking about salvation. Uh, there are those who have difficulty coming from our background, English speakers and English idioms, and those who don't understand Middle Eastern uh, idioms or Middle Eastern culture, they look at this and they go, well, it says right here, God hated Jacob. I mean, God hated Esau. So if God hated Esau, that must mean that Esau wasn't saved. But that mis- completely misunderstands the idiom uh, that is going on here in this particular passage. It is talking about, especially when they're stated in terms of opposites, that you are uh, accepting or preferring one person over another. It is not that you are rejecting the other person. It's that you are just giving preference to one person or one course of action over another course of action. And so uh, to human beings, this looks arbitrary and this looks like God's not fair. And uh, that's what Paul addresses in verse 14 with the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? No, God in his sovereignty has the freedom to choose people for particular destinies. Okay, He's not selecting Jacob to go to heaven and Esau to go to eternal condemnation. That's, that's not, not the context at all. And then the second illustration will be verse 15. We come back to that. The promise in the Old Testament was to Abraham that it's through his seed that the world would be blessed. Romans 9, 7 focuses on this. Not all the children of Abraham were uh, part of the line. The seed, the descendant, the line that would uh, end up in the Messiah was to be called through Isaac, and then later it would go uh, through Jacob. That's what's emphasized in Romans Romans 9.13. And the point is, if we go back to the original episode, as I pointed out last time, that these two individuals, these two individual names do not represent individuals. It represents their descendants. As God said to Rebecca when the children in the womb were struggling within her, um, God said to her, two nations are in your womb. Uh, two peoples shall be separated from your body. The focus is on their descendants and the future history of these two related peoples. The descendants of Esau were called the Edomites, and the descendants, of course, of Jacob were Israel. He would have, uh, he would be the father of the twelve progenitors of the twelve tribes of Israel. Now this phrase, Esau, uh, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated comes out of Malachi chapter 1. The burden of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, says the Lord. 
Yet you say, in what way have you loved us? He's talking to the nation Israel. And so it begins, this section begins with God's statement of his choice of Jacob through whom the Abrahamic covenant would go and the choice of those descendants for the line to the Messiah. It was through this innumerable line of descendants from Abraham through Isaac and then through Jacob that God would bless the world. He would give them the responsibilities of receiving the revelation of his word and recording it and preserving it. And so that the Old Testament scriptures came through Israel, were recorded, and uh, are used by us us today. And so it begins with this statement. It's not talking about their eternal destiny. It is talking about their plan, God's plan for those descendants in history. Now, one thing we should note as a result of uh, doing some background study on Malachi, Malachi is written in the uh, after the return of the Jews from the captivity or exile in Babylon. They were disciplined by God for their idolatry. Uh, they were defeated. Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple was destroyed. And many of the uh, Jews living in Israel were deported to Babylon. Some left and went to Egypt. Some scattered to some other areas. But primarily they were taken to Babylon. So it's called the Babylonian captivity. They returned in approximately 536, 537 B.C. And it took a couple of generations before uh, a, a sufficient number really had returned. In the first generation, they rebuilt and rededicated the temple called the Second Temple. Uh, and then um, by the time you get into the mid-5th century B.C., around 450, they're having more spiritual problems. And one of the issues is their mental attitude sins, especially toward their cousins and neighbors, the Edomites. This is going to come to a head uh, even at the time of Jesus. And their, uh, their, the fact that they hated Herod the Great, who was an Edomite, Edomite king. And so what happens during uh, this time after five, when, when uh, Babylon destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C., the Edomites came along and decided they would uh, pile on the Jews that were left. They would take advantage of the defeat of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem. And so after Nebuchadnezzar left, they came in and, and plundered Jerusalem even more and took advantage of the Jews. And as a result of this, uh, the Jews had developed an intense and bitter hatred of the Edomites. Uh, they never forgave or reconciled uh, with the Edomites after this uh, plunder, and it continued to fester this uh, racial, ethnic hatred uh, even to the time of Herod the Great. That's what, one of the things I pointed out when we went through uh, Matthew was that the Pharisees hated the Edomites, and so they hated Herod. But they were, they hated Jesus even more. So they were willing to make peace with the Herodians 
in order to get Jesus. Sort of reminds you of some people who hate our president so much that they are willing to give up their freedoms and the Constitution and many other things just because they they hate him more than they love anything else. Well, that's not new in history. That's uh, That's been going on forever where you have polit- people who hate somebody so much that they will sacrifice many good things in their life just to carry out their vindictiveness uh, and to accomplish that end. So this was happening at that time, and and so the passage goes on to argue that God had just a different purpose for Esau and Jacob. He said, Jacob I love, that is Jacob I preferred for the purpose of the covenant, but Esau I have hated. It doesn't mean that he sent him to the lake of fire or chose him for condemnation, but he is now bringing judgment, uh, going to bring judgment against the Edomites. And this is a prophecy of that uh, that would take place, laying waste his mountains and his heritage for the jackals of the wilderness. This is talking about what happens in history to the uh, nation of Edom, not what is happening to Esau personally in terms of his, uh, his eternal destiny. You also have passages and references in other places in Scripture. For example, uh, Jacob was duped by his father Laban into, uh, uh, he had worked for seven years. He wanted to marry Rachel, the younger sister, but then uh, because of the veil that was over the bride's face, uh, Laban slipped in the older sister Leah as a substitute, and so Jacob had to marry Leah. And so then he had to work another seven years for for Rachel. And in Genesis twenty nine thirty one it says that he hated Leah. He didn't hate Leah. He loved her. He had numerous children by Leah. He preferred Rachel. So it's simply a statement of preference, not a term of personal hate. It's also used that way in Deuteronomy 21, verses 15 to 17, and in Luke 24:26. So the, this shows that the focus here is on God's plan and purpose for the nations that these two individuals would be uh, the fathers of. It's not about their personal, eternal destiny. Now, the second example, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 33. The next two examples come out of Exodus. And so we're going to look first at Exodus chapter 33. Now, this incident takes place after the giving of the law at Mount Sinai, after the rebellion of the people against God when they uh, convinced Aaron to uh, construct a an idol, a golden calf, and they sinned against the Lord. And then uh, Moses came down from the mountain, and you have this uh, confrontation with those who had uh, rebelled against God. So, and if and then there there's going to be this interesting interchange. This is a teaching moment. There's some several t- incidents like this in the Scripture where God for lack of a better term, plays devil's advocate. And he is saying, I'm going to do something. 
Now, God's not really going to do it, but he says he's going to do it to see how Moses will handle it. He's going to, God says that because these people have rebelled against him, he's going to wipe them out and start over again with Moses. It's a test to see if Moses is going to be an advocate for the people on the basis of the Abrahamic covenant and, and come to God and remind him that he had entered into this unconditional covenant with Abraham and therefore God should not destroy the nation. Is, is uh, Moses going to uh, stand up for the truth? You have this same kind of test when God tells Abraham to sacrifice his, his only son, his unique son, Isaac. God never intended for him to kill Isaac. It was a test to see if Abraham could apply that which God had already taught him. So in Exodus 33:19 we have the origin of the quote that we find in in Romans chapter 9 uh which is uh used unfortunately out of context by many people in arguing that for God's arbitrary sovereign will in determining who will be saved and who will uh, who will not be saved. And we read this in uh, Romans chapter 9, where he says, What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. And then in verse 15, uh, Paul quotes from uh, Exodus 33, For he says to Moses, that is, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. And then he makes his point after that. He says, so then it is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Now, if he's talking in Romans 9 about selection for eternal salvation, then people interpret this to mean, well, God's going to have mercy on some and they're going to be saved and God's not going to have mercy on others and they will be elect to eternal condemnation. And so it's all up to God. Isn't that what Paul says in the next verse? It's not of him who wills. doesn't matter what your volition is. It's not of him who wills nor of him who runs but it is of God who shows mercy. So God's going to show mercy on the elect that he has chosen from eternity past, and he is not going to show mercy on those whom he has not elected. So does that bear up to our interpretation of the original uh, statement by God in Exodus 33, 19? The Statement at the top is the New King James, and then I have uh, retranslated it a little bit based on uh, my own understanding of the original language along with some of uh, part of this was translated by Alan Ross and the first part of it, and so I used his translation. So let me just read from the bottom translation. Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him, that is Moses, 
And Yahweh made proclamation of Yahweh. He is proclaiming, he's, the, the usual way that this is translated is proclaiming the name of the Lord or calling on the name of the Lord. So here we have the Lord coming down on the mountain and he calls upon the name of the Lord. And what that is, what that phrase calling on the name of the Lord means is, comes out in the context. It is displaying the character of God. It is proclaiming the character of God. And that's going to come into play here because of the last phrase that we have in Ephesians 1 5 that talks about, uh, to the praise of the glory of His grace. Uh, just as a, just to pull things together, glory is often used as a summary term for the essence of God. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the righteousness, justice, holiness, omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, immutability, and veracity of God. That's a long verse. It's easier to say all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What makes God glorious is his character. What the word glory has as its original sense, that which is important and that which is weighty. And so scripture refers to the glory of God as that which makes God the most important being in the universe. And if God is the most important being in the universe, then God should be the most important being in your life and in my life. So this idea of proclaiming the name of the Lord means to proclaim the essence or the character of the Lord and uh, he does this by revealing something about himself and we go on to read in the last part of my translation and Yahweh passed in front of him and made proclamation and this is what God proclaimed I will show unmerited favor that's grace to whom I will show unmerited favor, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Now, contextually, when God says this to Moses, is Moses saved? He's justified. Yes, he has eternal destiny has been secure. Moses is already uh, justified. He has been justified for many, many years. Have mo- are most of the Jews at this point justified? Yes, they are. So this is not a context or passage talking about how to get to have heaven or God's compassion and mercy in determining that you will get to heaven. We have to look at the context to understand what is going on. And so the context goes back to understanding the golden calf incident in chapter 32 and God announcing that he will judicially uh, condemn the people. He will punish those who rebelled against him uh, because they were disloyal to the covenant. Just a few chapters earlier, they, they had sworn to God that they would do everything that God said to do. And as soon as Moses disappeared up on Mount Sinai, they got a little bored, and they said to Aaron, build us an idol, build us a golden calf. And so now when Moses comes down, he sees the rebellion of the people and God's announcement that he will punish them. So Moses pleaded with God not to destroy the, the nation. And he goes to the Abrahamic covenant and he says, because of this promise, if you destroy the nation, this will bring dishonor upon you among all the nations. And so uh, God is says that he will uh, not destroy the nation, but nevertheless... Um, 
he will punish them. And Moses asked in that context for God to forgive, uh, to forgive Israel and even if necessary to remove his name from the book so that he will give his life so that the nation can survive. Uh, notice the issue here is about forgiveness of sin. It's not about them determining their eternal destiny. It's a phase two issue of their spiritual growth, not a phase one getting to heaven justification salvation issue. In Exodus 33:12, Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. In other words, who's going to be my co-leader in this? Yet you've said, Moses talking to God, yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found grace in my sight. This is not just justification grace. This is the grace in calling Moses to be a leader of the nation and providing all of the things uh, related to fulfilling God's plan for Israel. Moses was selected to be the leader in relation to God's plan for Israel. It's not selection for his eternal justification. And then in verse uh, 16... We read Moses again saying, For how then will it be known that your people and I have found grace in your sight, except you go with us? So we shall be separate, your people and I, from all the people who are upon the face of the earth. And when he asks this question, he says, How then will it be known? To what does the it refer? It goes back in context to God's purpose for Israel. When this part of this is quoted in Romans 9, we find that it goes back to Romans 9.16 when it talks about the mercy, I mean, excuse me, Romans 9.11 when it talks about the purpose of God. And then in Exodus 33.17, so the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing that you have spoken for you have found grace in my sight, and I know your name. And so then Moses makes a request. He said, Lord, show me your glory. What's he asking? Show me your essence. Show me who you are. I want to have a closer understanding and perception of who you are. And so in verse 19, we read, Then Yahweh came down in the cloud and stood there with him, And Yahweh made proclamation of Yahweh. He made proclamation about himself. He's calling upon, uh, he's proclaiming his name, his character. And he passes in front of Moses and made this proclamation. I will show unmerited favor to whom I will show unmerited favor, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. What is he saying? God is revealing his grace and his compassion in a unique way to Moses at that point. It has nothing whatsoever to do with where Moses is going to spend eternity. It has everything to do with God giving a fuller revelation of himself to Moses. He doesn't do that for everybody. He did that for Moses in relation to God's plan for Moses. 
The point that I am making is when Paul uses this, he doesn't change its meaning in Romans 9. He is still talking only about God's plan and purpose for Israel, which is what all of the illustrations have to do with. It doesn't have anything to do with God's selection of Jacob to go to heaven and Esau not to go to heaven. It doesn't have anything to do with, I will be compassionate on or gracious to uh, Moses, and Moses will go to heaven, but I'm going to uh, pass over other people, and they will go to the lake of fire. It doesn't have anything to do with that. So he's going to reveal who he is in terms of his essence. I'm changing up the title of this to Essence of a Holy God. Holiness, I've wrestled with this for, for decades. Holiness is not a particular attribute of God. You'll read some. I had some professors in seminary say, well, holiness is like the combination of his justice and righteousness, and that's not quite right either. The word holy means to be distinct or unique. Uh, when we are called to be holy, it is not to be morally perfect, but to be set apart to the service of God, to be uniquely designated for God's service. And so God's distinctiveness, his uniqueness, applies to every attribute. He is uniquely sovereign. There's no other sovereign like him. He is uniquely righteous. There's no one who has righteousness that comes close to God. He is uniquely just. You know, justice is becoming a big buzzword with a lot of people talking about social justice. Christians need to be talking about biblical justice, about God's justice, not about social justice, which is antithetical. It is antagonistic to biblical justice. Um, God is love. He's perfect love. He's unique in his love. No creature can approach God in his love. We can only uh, imitate it in a finite way. Uh, he is eternal. He knows all things. He's all-powerful. He's uh, present to every aspect of his creation. He is veracity. He's absolute truth, and he is in immutable. He is unchangeable. That's the essence of God. So Moses gets a glimpse of God's character in Exodus uh, chapter uh, 33, 19 and, and following. And so this is, this is essential to understand uh, the purpose of the illustration that, that Paul is using in Romans chapter 9. His conclusion in Romans 9.16 is, then it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but God who shows mercy. God showed mercy to Moses in revealing himself in this unique way to Moses. It's not about justification. God has different plans for different people, and it's God's sovereign uh, will, it's his sovereign pleasure to uh, treat people in different ways. That's not being unfair or un unequal. Now, the next illustration is one that everybody gets a little wrapped around the axle on, and that comes from uh, the first part of Exodus. For the Scripture says to the Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name shall be declared in all of the earth. Conclusion, therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. Now, the question is, 
is this about Pharaoh's eternal destiny? Is this about God hardening Pharaoh so Pharaoh can't believe in God or um, will not be saved? Not at all. It's interesting to study through the many different ways that the English translates the word hardened. There's three different words that are used, and there's 18 different times in the English text that Pharaoh's heart being hard or hardened is mentioned, 18 times. Nine times Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It's the result of his own volition. He hardens his own heart. Uh, Of the rest, the Lord is the one who is said to harden his heart. Now, the first two times the hardening of Pharaoh's heart are mentioned, it is by the Lord, but it is a predictive summation. Go back and read. Ephesians 4 is a long time before the, um, uh, the, the plagues began. And God is simply telling Moses that in the course of his deliverance of the Jews, he will harden Pharaoh's heart. That is not a statement that means every time Pharaoh's heart gets hardened, God's involved. Because seven times it's going to mention Pharaoh hardening his own heart in the progression of events before God ever gets involved in it. And in Exodus 7, 3, in chapter 7, verses 1 through, I believe it's around 6 or 7, God's doing the same thing. He is giving a predictive summary. He's telling Moses what's going to happen. Now, God only has to harden Pharaoh's heart a few times at the end for this prediction to be true. He doesn't have to, it doesn't mean or imply that every time Pharaoh's heart is hardened, that it's God doing it. It's very clear in the scripture when God does it and when Pharaoh does it. In fact, in Exodus chapter 7, verse 13 and 14, when the first appeal is made to Pharaoh by Moses to release the people, uh, the text says, And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. Now, who's doing the hardening here? It's Pharaoh. It's his volition. He's, you have to understand who the Pharaoh is. The Pharaoh is supposed to be the incarnation of one of the Egyptian deities. He is the son of God. He is God himself. So you have Pharaoh coming with, I mean, you have Moses coming to Pharaoh from a competing deity. And as far as Pharaoh is concerned, uh, this, this is a, a, a threat to his authority and his sovereignty over Egypt, and he's not going to give it up at all. And so he's going to resist this. Who are these upstart slaves that think that they can just come in here and boss me around with some made-up God that I never heard of before? And so Pharaoh's not going to do it. He's not going to put up with it. It's He's rejecting it from the get-go. He has already, based on a summary of the process in Romans 1, 18 and following, he's already rejected uh, any God other than himself. So he's already determined his eternal destiny by his rejection of, of general revelation, and now he's going to reject the special revelation coming from, from Moses. So we're told Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He doesn't say, I hardened his heart. He says, Pharaoh's heart is hard. It's a result of Pharaoh's decision. 
He refuses to let the people go. And then in Ephesians, excuse me, Exodus 9.16, this is the quotation that, the origin of the quotation that Paul uh, uses in Romans chapter 9, uh, where God says, but indeed for this purpose, that's what we're studying, God has a plan and a purpose. For this purpose I have raised you up, that is Pharaoh, that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in the earth. That doesn't mean that God had Pharaoh born so that God could send him to the lake of fire. He knew, remember, everything is preceded by God's foreknowledge. He knew this Pharaoh would be uh, would oppose him and would reject God. And this is in fulfillment of the prophecy that was given in the Abrahamic covenant when he told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13, that their descendants would live in a land that was not theirs and serve in a foreign land for uh, 400 years as slaves, and then they would God would release them. So back to Romans 9, Romans 9, 19, Paul says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? See, the, the objector here is assuming that God is the one who determines every dotted I and every cross T. And so he's saying, well, what you're saying here is God controls everything, and Paul continues to, to deal with the fact that, that this is, has to do with God's plan for Israel. And so in Romans 9, 20 to 22, he alludes to the passage in Jeremiah 18. I want you to turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 18. Paul goes to the potter and the clay episode. Now, I have heard some rather well-known Calvinist expositors and pastors and seminary professors teach the potter and the clay as having to do with God's determination of who will be saved and who will not be saved. But we're going to look at the context to see if that's what God is talking about. Let me just read what Paul says in Romans 9. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? In other words, why does God find fault? He makes all the decisions anyway. Who could resist his will? And so Paul responds by saying, but indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? God has his purposes. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me this way? Well, what's the thing? The thing is not the individual and his eternal destiny. It is these, the plan for Israel. What's the purpose of Romans 9? The covenants and the promises still belong to Israel. God has not permanently rejected Israel. It's all about the fact that God chose the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, from eternity past for a purpose. The nation is chosen for a purpose. It doesn't have anything to do with individual justification. Uh, Verse 21, does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? The vessels represent nations, as we'll see when we get back to Jeremiah. What if God, wanting to show his wrath, that is a term for his justice, his fierce justice, and to, he wants to show his justice and his, make his power known, he endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath, that's going to be nations, not individuals, prepared for destruction. So let's look at Jeremiah 18. Jeremiah 18 
it talks it starts in verse 1 the word of the lord came to jeremiah saying arise and go to the potter's house so we're going to have a little teaching moment here with a visual aid of a potter and the clay then i went down to the potter's house and there he was making something at the wheel and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make so now we're going to get an application Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, and in verse 6 we read, O house of Israel. This time about an individual or a corporate entity. It's talking about a corporate entity. It's talking about God's plan for the nation Israel. It's not talking about any individuals and their eternal salvation. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter? In other words, in God's sovereignty, he rules over the destinies of nations. O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. So he's talking about a group. He's not talking about individuals. The instant I speak concerning a nation, see, he says it right there. He's talking about a nation. The instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom, to pluck up, to pull down, and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. See, this is a much better passage in Second Chronicles 7.14, which says, if my people who are called by my name repent. It's not, my people's always Israel. This is a universal principle stated by God that, uh, uh, that's the universal ultimate principle of which Second Chronicles 7.14 is an application based on the Mosaic Covenant to Israel. It has absolutely nothing to do with America, with uh, uh, any other nation, because God hasn't entered into a contract with any other nation. But this states it, if that nation, any nation, against whom I've spoken, if God is going to announce judgment on it, uh, I will relent if they change their mind. Can you give me an example from the Bible where that happened? Nineveh, Jonah, takes a message and they turn to God and God relented of his punishment. Verse 9, And the instant I speak concerning a nation and concerning a kingdom to build and to plant it, if it does evil in my sight so that it does not obey my voice, then I will relent concerning the good with which I said I would benefit it. So this is the fourth illustration in Romans chapter 9. Again, it is not talking at any point about God's plan for any individual's eternal destiny. It is talking about God's plan and purpose for the nation Israel. And so this helps us to understand what's going on back in our passage in Ephesians 5 when it talks about God's uh, God's purpose and that he has uh, preordained us to adoption as sons. It is a corporate entity. God has a plan and purpose for the body of Christ according to the good pleasure of his will. It is it is not talking about his will for each individual's eternal destiny. It is talking about his will for those who are in Christ and the plan and the purpose he has for us. And that continues to be the drumbeat throughout this whole uh, praise of God in verses 3 through 14 with our heads bowed and our eyes closed.
Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study and to be reminded that you're, you rule over the affairs of men. You rule over the nations, and you raise up one nation, and you take down another. And that has to do with your plans for history. But, Father, you have plans and purposes for each individual, and that begins with our decision related to Jesus Christ, our understanding of the gospel, that we are born sinners, dead in our sin, and that we need to be made alive again. And that only occurs by trusting in Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty for our sin at the cross. He died for us in our place. And that salvation is simply by putting our faith and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal salvation. Now, Father, I pray that you would uh, open the eyes of those who are here to understand the gospel if they, um, if they need to. And if for the rest of us who are saved, we pray that you might help us to understand uh, what we have studied today and its significance for understanding your plan and your purpose for us as church-age believers, those in the body of Christ who have given a special, uh, special appointment to, uh, to live out our justification, to live out our salvation in such a way that we are a testimony before, uh, before a fallen world and before the angels, and that you would make it clear to those that are not saved that they need to trust in Christ for eternal life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.